0: Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed there's been a lot of sex scandal uh, streaming across the airwaves, the media waves, the social media waves. have got Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion who dropped a apparently vulgar video um, at the beginning of the month. We have the Jerry Falwell Jr. scandal with Liberty University in finding out that he was possibly consenting participant of some kind of non-monogamous relationship. We have sex trafficking scandals breaking. uh, It seems like state after state continues to report a new bust where sex traffickers have been arrested and girls have been rescued. So sex is in the air. And, you know, I'm happy that sex is in the air, but not under the circumstances of which it has been circulating. However, with every scandal, with every controversy, and with every unfortunate event, we have an opportunity to learn from it, to create new discussions out of it, and to talk about things that we typically don't talk about, which is sex and building a healthy sexual identity is part of what helps us self-actualize as human beings. Let's take these moments that have rubbed us the wrong way, especially Ben Shapiro, and let's talk about what happened and what we can peel back and strip down to reveal about what's underneath. So there's your sensor warning. We about to talk dirty because I am going to bring in some of the Cardi B lyrics. And I'm also going to read a few verses from Song of Songs. I want to turn to the book Insatiable Wives by Dr. David J. Lay. This book is really interesting because what it does is it chronicles kind of the history and patterns and behaviors of women and their desires to operate in a non-monogamous form within their relationships. And a lot of people believe that polyamory or a desire to participate in an open marriage or to practice threesomes regularly, anything along those lines must mean that you have some kind of mental deficiency. Um, But something that Dr. David Lay pointed out in his book, Insatiable Wives, was contrary to that general notion and assumption. And so I just want to read something real quick that he says in his book. And this is from chapter 7, Fetish and Fantasy. Even when symptoms of mental illness are present, to assume the wife-sharing behaviors are either casual or symptomatic also represents a potential error. The examples of this behavior among couples and individuals that have no emotional problems or mental illness must be explained before one can relate any individual problem to this lifestyle. But, Like pornography, where research shows that there are tremendously and overwhelmingly far greater numbers of people who experience no negative effects from pornography use, our reaction to unfamiliar and uncommon sexual behavior triggers an automatic judgment of deviance, which generalizes to a negative judgment of a person. It is also fascinating to consider that these behaviors might, in one fashion or another, in some individuals actually help to manage and reduce the negative impact of real mental or emotional disorders such as depression or the lingering effects of childhood abuse. As Roy Baumeister and even the slog poster Sadadru suggest, these behaviors may serve an adaptive function within an individual and a couple. As husbands find ways to give up burden of being in charge and wives find ways of establishing independence and sexual freedom. So all of that is basically to say that we should stop assuming that just because people participate in unfamiliar or uncommon relationships does not mean necessarily that they have some kind of mental or emotional defect deficiency or are suffering with some kind of mental health issue. And that's usually where we go. And I think that I saw concerns of that when this whole Jerry Fowell Jr. scandal broke the airwaves. And that something must be wrong. Although I think the majority of the people just wanted to focus on the fact that he was kind of living uh, as a hypocrite. And I'm totally down with that. I can see the hypocrisy in what Jerry Fowell Jr. and Liberty University represent and symbolize. And I am fully aware of the rhetoric that they constantly perpetuated. I know that they were not inclusive of the LGBTQ community, nor are they inclusive of any ideas that push against what they deem as a biblically sound relationship. If we look at Liberty University's honor code and policy, under the Statement on Sexuality and Relationships, they do discuss that, I'm going to quote here, Sexual relationships outside of a biblically ordained marriage between a natural-born man and a natural-born woman are not permissible at Liberty University. In personal relationships, students are encouraged to know and abide by common sense guidelines to avoid the appearances of impropriety. Activities inconsistent with the standards and guidelines are violations of the online student honor code. And so we can see they have some stringent rules. You know, they, they want you to only live as a natural-born man who is attracted to a natural-born woman. And clearly, Fowell Jr.'s behavior falls out of line with this kind of code of conduct. Dr. David J. Lay, writing for Psychology Today, actually really expounded on the idea of whether or not Fowell Jr. deserves sexual privacy. And kind of walks through a questioning on that. And what he does is he references a 1973 case of a Virginia Beach couple who was prosecuted for committing sodomy. And so he goes on to share this story about this couple with another gentleman who was involved in the relationship. And the Court of Appeals Judge Hainsenworth wrote in his opinion that, quote, married couples engage in acts of sexual intimacy that they do is no secret. Though they converse with friends or write books about their sexual relations, recounting in explicit detail their own intimacies and techniques, they remain protected in their expectation of privacy within their own bedroom. State law protects them from unwelcome intruders, and the federal constitution protects them from the state in the guise of an unwelcome intruder. What the federal constitution protects is the right of privacy in circumstances in which it may be reasonably in which it may be reasonably be expected. Once a married couple admits strangers as onlookers, federal protection of privacy dissolves. It matters not whether the audience is composed of one, fifty, or one hundred, or whether the onlookers pay for their titillation. If the couple performs sexual acts for the excitation or gratification of welcome onlookers, they cannot selectively claim that the state is an intruder. They possess the freedom to follow their own inclinations and privacy, but once they accept onlookers, whether they are close friends, chance acquaintances, observed peeping toms, or paying customers, they may not exclude the state as a constitutionally forbidden intruder, end quote. Not only with a court ruling such as this is a precedent to look back on and refer to, but it also raises the other question that during our technological phase of where we're at, do we really deserve privacy? Are we not exploiting ourselves with all of the devices and cameras that upload to Wi-Fi and sync to Bluetooth and upload to the cloud even when we don't ask it to? I mean, isn't it kind of contradictory of us to ask for privacy when all of our actions throughout the day suggest we don't really concern ourselves with privacy? I mean, really, look at the way we are on social media as it is. If we take a shit, if we eat some new food, if we got late, we are telling somebody about it. So, that's a very interesting question for us to consider and reflect upon. Are we entitled to the privacy if, if it lurks outside the circumference of what the Constitution establishes as proprietary privacy? Now, we don't have to answer that question. We can move along. I'm more interested in talking about this whole cuckoldry thing. It's something that I have been enthusiastically interested in in just understanding and learning. And when I started putting together the pieces of how Fowl Jr. has been acting over the last, I'd say year, in regard to how he presents himself on social media, it seems to me that he might have been trying to show us that maybe his views were shifting a little bit. That maybe there was a little bit underneath the surface that he was trying to chip away at to reveal and We're not willing to consider that because we're too focused on the fact that he was a hypocrite, too focused on the fact that he threw his wife under the bus, too focused on the fact that we've always hated Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. because of his association with Trump, and now we have even more justifiable reason to continue loathing that person and pointing our finger at him, all the while we feel morally principled. Forget the principles, okay? Forget pointing the finger. Forget all the bullshit. I know he probably caused a lot of harm and damage just based on the words that he's used over the years, based on the way that he's articulated his lectures and arguments, based on his public tweets and posts. Yes, he said horrible things. He did horrible things. He acted in a way that was directly contradictory to the things that he claimed he believed in and valued. Who hasn't done that, though? Like, seriously, I laugh a lot of times when people online, because one day they'll post something like, love can be so easily destroyed. It can just be killed just like that. And then the next day they're posting something like, love will never die. Love cannot be killed. Love is eternal. Within just a matter of 12 hours... We don't realize that we kind of contradict ourselves. We hold a value or a belief or like some kind of meme or post, and the next day we're liking something, not realizing it's a contrariety to what we liked the day before. And so because we're not focused and aware of that, I don't really think we should focus on pointing our finger right now. I think we should be asking the bigger question of, why did this man want to watch his wife have sex with another man? And is that popular? Is that common? Why did he go that route? What made that attractive to him? What made the couple decide that this was something that would help their relationship, that would benefit them? I'm not focused on why did they think they could get away with it. Because let's be honest, I don't care what kind of message you're living out loud in the public life. As long as what you're doing behind closed doors is consensual and is with an adult and is not forcing or coercing anybody into anything, if you're not trying to manipulate or exploit anybody, I don't care. I don't care if your actions in the daylight don't match your actions at night. I don't care. That's for you to wrestle with, not me. That's for you to develop, not me. All I wanna know is why aren't more people speaking out about this popular arrangement known as cuckoldry or hot wifing? What's that all about? Can we dig into that? So why don't we start with a definition, and I'm going to pull from Insatiable Wives by Dr. Lay again, and this is from Chapter 4 of Alternatives to Monogamy. What is a hot wife? Not surprisingly, Webster's doesn't define it. Wikipedia defines a hot wife as a subculture of swinging, and it reads, The term hot wife refers to a married woman who has sex with men other than her spouse, with her husband's consent. In most cases, the husband takes a vicarious pleasure in watching their wives and the other males enjoyment or enjoy watching, hearing or knowing about their wives' adventures. Husbands may also take part by engaging in threesomes or arranging dates for their wives. And so, the first question everybody's asking is who the hell would enjoy watching their wife have sex with another man. But the reality is is there's a there's a good amount of people that actually like that and if what we heard is true from the pool boy, Fowell Jr is among those participants and those watchers, so I don't want to focus on pointing our finger or even trying to look at this as any kind of a deviant nature because I don't really believe that's what it is honestly it it makes me want to understand it more because how do you love so freely that you share your wife but if we look back at history, it's kind of a tradition. We can look back at indigenous tribes from all different countries all over the world. And that was just kind of the formal thing that you did. You had a new person in town. You're making a deal with a neighboring tribe. Whatever it is, just to be hospitable, you offered your wife. And of course, it was up to the wife. The wife consented in a lot of, in many cases, in many other cases, I don't, I, possibly not, but history shows that this was a common formality of civility and of extension of friendship and connection, of contract, of agreement, of unity and of community. And so even before all of that, before we had these fun little terms, before we even recognized husband and wife, before that, we just kind of acted as a community of people who loved each other in as many different ways as that one wanted to, and we looked after everybody's children. But you know, during that time, I'd say, if we're looking back 5,000 years or more, back when God was a woman, back when women were worshipped, men didn't know who the, the mother of their children were. Men didn't even know that they were participants of creating the child at all. It used to be that, wow, a woman just all of a sudden popped out a kid. This is a magical, wonderful, divine gift and accomplishment that men just couldn't do. It's not like they always knew that having sex equaled baby. It's not like they always knew that the sperm is what was required in order to impregnate a woman and allow her to grow her her belly and her breasts and to create this life. Nobody knew that back then. Everybody just did what they thought was right within their community, and that meant sharing, because sharing is caring. And now I know I've used that mantra before, and I've even used it in reference to talking about polyamory, but I can also admit to you, I'm not very good at sharing. I'm quite selfish and jealous. However, there are many spouses out there who are not. There are many husbands out there who gain more pleasure at the very fact that their wife is receiving more pleasure from another person. The more the merrier. And it's helpful to marriages. Now we can also consider this. There are some instances when a man physically cannot perform and he's married and his wife has needs. A woman has the same sexual needs as a man does. I don't care what book you've been reading. That's the gospel truth. And so what does a man do who loves his wife so much, but he can't perform for her? Does he not try and seek out a way for her to have that pleasure? And can he not find a way to also take joy and delight in that pleasure? History reveals to us story after story after story of men and women who along the ages found uncommon ways to make sure that their relationships were still work to make sure needs were met to make sure pleasures were induced and delighted upon now someone pointed out to me earlier that we could actually look to the bible to see a little bit of a permissible prescription based on how we cherry pick of course that paul speaks of in first corinthians 7 verse 29 what i mean brothers and sisters is that the time is short from now on those who have wives should live as if they do not. So what do we do with that? Now, am I looking for a way to add biblical authority to what I'm talking about? No, I'm saying it's a potentiality that we could look at if you want to. And so let's ask ourselves, what changed all of that? STDs, STIs, AIDS, those are the things that we concern ourselves with now. And so perhaps there is a reason that we cling to monogamy, to marriage, to partnership, to only two, because opening up the marriage means that you're opening yourself up to more risk, right? And not only that, but women are still at a greater risk for becoming pregnant. You know, say for instance, I'm in some kind of situation like this. I would have to consider my husband has gone through a vasectomy, so while well, he can't create other babies with me, that doesn't mean someone else would. There are enough concerns out there that deter us from engaging in relationships like that. But for those of us who take those concerns out of the equation, they find that relationships like this are healthy and beneficial. They're a recharge, they're invigorating, they allow for more freedom they help partnerships grow, Uh, they can help build better foundations for family where children are involved. Maybe this is a good conversation to start to start looking at cuckoldry, to start looking at non-monogamy, to start looking at polyamory and threesomes and open marriages under a new lens, a lens of love perhaps, a lens where We observe and acknowledge that love is limitless. Love operates outside of every boundary and fence that we could put up. And so long as people are engaging in a relationship where they put people as a priority over the term of the relationship and that people aren't objectified but are treated as divine subjects, where people are allowed to set boundaries if they need to, where people are allowed to change their mind, where people are allowed to experiment and see what else they like without shame, blame, or guilt, Uh, we should applaud that, okay? We shouldn't shame that. We shouldn't look down our nose at that. And so Fowl Jr. brings up a discussion. So turn to someone you know and ask them what they know about cuckoldry and start a conversation about it. And if you do, let me know how that goes for you because I would love to hear some feedback on that. So just to wrap up Fowell Jr., you know, I get it. We can be really simplistic. We can reduce Fowell Jr. to nothing more than a narcissistic hypocrite. We can bitch and whine and complain about all of the, the failures that we see under the Christianity umbrella. Under the Liberty University umbrella, we can we can harp on that, sure, but it doesn't solve anything and it doesn't create a new discussion. All I would like you to do is just redirect the way you think about things when sex scandals break. Okay, just consider all of the information Fowles has been revealing, little bits and pieces. Is it possible he was just too scared to say? what he really wanted or how he really behaved because of cancel culture, because of the scapegoat mentality, because of the way that we demand some form of retributive accountability. I mean, you call yourself a Christian. If you say you're about grace, that means you're about understanding. And if you're about understanding, that means you're not going to take the cheap shots and the bullshit ways that you can reduce a human being and point at him and say, ha ha ha, look at how much better I am than he is. It's easy. It's it's a simple route to go. It's the programmed habitual route to go. It's the way that everybody else does everything. But I'm different, and or at least I try to be, and I try to understand the madness behind the monster. And... So that's what I want to do here with Fowl Junior. I'm not excusing his behavior. I'm not excusing the way he's spoken to the masses. I wanna understand why he did what he did. I wanna understand what he was trying to reveal. I wanna understand what he had to conceal. I wanna understand him as a human, because if I can do that, if I can if I can find some form of relatability to him, then I don't have to judge him. But some people don't want to let go of judgment, so they're going to dedicate podcasts and articles and blogs and, and, and videos to just ripping the guy apart. Let's go a different route. Let's do something different. Let's do something unifying and loving and forgiving and filled with grace. Let's look at this issue. Let's look at the action. And let's see if we can't ask questions and see how those questions reveal answers for maybe our own fears and anxieties and sexual uncomfortability. Now, I'd like to switch over to Cardi B, because she created a bit of a controversy that everybody was an outrage over, and I was over here watching the live on YouTube when Wet Ass Pussy, or as Ben Shapiro calls it, Wet Ass P word, premiered. What's all the hullabaloo about then, exactly? Is it because a woman dared to talk about lady lubrication? Is it because a woman dared to talk about how she liked King Cobra with a hook? What was it exactly, other than the fact that a Kardashian appeared in the video, that got people so riled up? What was it that, what about the lyrics, made Republican congressional candidate James P. Bradley insist in his tweets after he accidentally happened upon the wet-ass p-word video, to say that this is what happens when children are raised without God, and now I need to pour holy water in my ears. But of course it was the lyrics, right? And so for fun, I'm going to let Ben Shapiro read them to you. And so this is from Daily Wire. This is Ben Shapiro reading the lyrics to Cardi B's WAP. Susan
1: B. Anthony. This is like women fighting for the right to vote. This right here is women fighting for the right to work. Right here, what we are watching is women fighting for the equal right to talk about their wet-ass keyword. That's what WAP stands for. So here are the actual lyrics. Okay, and this is, this is not demeaning to women in any way. It's not demeaning to women in any way. It doesn't turn women into sex objects. It doesn't make men think of women in a in a purely sexual fashion. It, it, it is women empowering themselves. It is super empowerment. Here are some of the lyrics. You ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effin' with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Beat it up, N word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want to ride. I do a kegel while it's inside. Spit in my mouth, look in my eyes. This P word is wet, come take a dive. And continue uh, along these lines.
0: So you heard a little bit of a preview. Let's thank Ben Shapiro for his participation in the WAP. And so he goes on to talk about um, not only how vulgar these lyrics are, but how this is basically what what's, feminism was geared at and so you know in in Shapiro snark fashion he ridiculed this and then went on to talk about you know the the possibility of a gynecological deficiency with Cardi B in that a wetness this significant that requires mops and buckets is actually a problem and so I laughed about this And I also wrote about this. I wrote about this on my Patheos blog. And I actually juxtaposed Cardi B lyrics with verses from Song of Songs. And so for the remainder of this podcast, I'm just gonna kind of talk about the things that I wrote about in my article and add in a little bit more of just my opinions in regard to the responses that other people shared regarding the Cardi B video. So I hope you're ready for that because here we go. So Cardi B was born October 1992 in Manhattan. Her rise to fame started with uh, her appearance on VH1's Love and Hip Hop New York. 2018 Atlantic Records dropped Invasion of Privacy. And ever since then, she has been unlimited with what she can do with her with her fame and with her attraction. She sat down with Bernie Sanders, something that was historical, right? Uh, uh, an ex-stripper who is now a rapper, wrote the lyrics to WAP, sat down with Bernie Sanders. And so she has generated so much attention that it's hard not to know who Cardi B is, and it's hard not to attach an image and a label to her. I want to I break that image and label. I think we're putting the wrong images and labels on her. And I think those who call themselves Christians need to take a step back and pause... And reflect on what kind of narrative we're continuing to perpetuate, especially if we're trying to break out of that whole purity culture mentality, if we're trying to show that that whole modest is hottest narrative was harmful. If the promise rings and the purity pledges really did cause damage, then let's not start repeating and recycling the same rhetoric that came out of those ideologies. And so that means we're going to look at Cardi B with an open mind and an open heart, the way Jesus would. So most people are pretty upset over her lyrics because they're vulgar and overtly sexually suggestive and and, and too damaging to the ears of children and con- congressional candidates, apparently, so much so that they have to wash their ears out with holy water. But is that really the case? And so... Not everybody has the same angle that I do. Not everybody delves around in the Bible and theology and Cardi B, probably with the same experience and lens that I do. But what I saw in Cardi B's lyrics are the same things that I've seen in the Bible. And so I'm going to read you a couple of passages that I pulled out of the Bible, not from Song of Songs, but from Proverbs. The first one is about eating Honey. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you, and if you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 24, 13-14 Second one. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it, and it will make you vomit. Proverbs 25, 16 third one one who is full loathes honey from the comb but to the hungry even what is bitter tastes sweet proverbs 27 7 now totally totally could take this any way you want to because the bible is mysterious in that way in that we can read it allegorically we can read it as prose we can read it as poetry you can take it literally if you want people do all sorts of things with the Bible. Remember, I have an erotic lens, and I also want to go back to the Bible and go, where else have I seen honey talked about, and what does it symbolize? You know where the other spot is that I remember seeing honey referenced in such a way that you should eat it, and it is wisdom for you, and that it's sweet to the taste? That's right, Song of Songs, okay? So now we're going to go over to Song of Songs, and we're, I'm going to read you a little bit. Song of Songs, 410 ten. Through 5-1. And I'll probably put a little bit of emphasis on it. He. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrances of your perfume more than any spice? Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. My bride, milk and honey under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates. With choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes, and all of the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. She, awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden. And taste its choice fruits. He. I have come into my garden. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. And I have drunk my wine and milk. That's kind of sexy, isn't it? And that's in our Bible. And I'm gonna just put a little bit of a suggestion. That he's not talking about a garden. And he's not talking about her perfume. Not the one she spritzed on her neck from a bottle, anyway. And there are so many references within all of Song of Songs that so many pass off as just a metaphor for the representation of the love of God. God gave us body parts to show each other how we love each other. And it is through our movements and our motions and our penetrative depths that we are allowed to go deeper in the expression of physical love. So, it could be a metaphor about sex, but wouldn't one have to have sex in such a way, maybe eating honey from the honeycomb, in order to even make that reference? And so often, what we lead ourselves to believe that the writers of the Bible never experienced what they wrote about, even if it was in metaphor, come on, yes they did. You can't write sensual verses like that without it meaning something a little bit dirtier than doctrine calls for, okay? With an erotic lens over the Bible, let's try and figure out how to define honey. So let's go back to other spots where this term is referenced and see where the symbolism lies. So in Isaiah, milk and honey are presented as benefits and gifts of abundance and sustenance. So in Isaiah 7:14 through16, it says this: "Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Also, in Isaiah 7:22, it says, "In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. And then we jump back to Exodus, and it speaks about the holy ground reserved for the Israelites of Egypt with the reference to the same elements of milk and honey. So Exodus 3, 7-8 says this, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites. Milk and honey, both natural creations, both represent the symbolism behind the treasures and pleasures of the earth and the spirit. Water and wetness symbolizes birth, creation, and energy. So throughout the Bible, the lack of honey or the taking away of honey and curds is really important, right? That that demonstrates a lack and scarcity. So honey and milk represent life, and land flowing with it is an abundant life. If we go back to the Song of Songs verse, women don't carry milk and honey under their tongue, okay? So it's not literal. But it might be a euphemism, and... Where does milk flow from? My breasts. And you know what else my breasts do? They nourish a baby's life. And the honey in the honeycomb? Do you really have to think too long and hard about what that is representative of? Where does honey drip from? The honeycomb. Where is the honeycomb located on the woman? Her vulva. So now I want to go back to the verse from Song of Songs. There's that particular little little partial statement that I want to talk about. Because it made me think of something. The fragrance of your garments. For me, that's easily recognized as him saying the smell of you. And a woman's scent lingers, even so much that it can linger across the table, filling the room. And we see this mentioned again in Song of Songs 1, 12 through 14. And she says, while my king was at the table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. And you know what else a woman has? A taste. And a man who has tasted a woman knows that. Her taste is unique. It's different from any other woman he's ever tasted. It tastes like honey like wine, like sweet nectars of the finest fruits. I have come into my garden. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. If we want to translate that colloquially, we don't have to stretch our imagination. And I don't think Cardi B did either. Her articulation is similar. She doesn't want to spit. She doesn't want to gulp. She wants to gag and choke. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Cardi B, she says it a little differently. I want you to park that Big Mac truck right in this little garage. Ultimately, Cardi B and Megan Lee Stallion, and we've seen this everywhere, okay? Nicki Minaj, Missy Elliott, her, Beyonce, Foxy Brown, Lil' Kim. And every other artist who has ever put poetry to passion has essentially taken biblical verses and reframed them to fit into today's modern context. And we refuse to acknowledge that initially. Maybe we might have to confront our own insecurities and limitations. And I know that makes us uncomfortable. The things that make us uncomfortable, they inspire us to think. And then we think deeper about the way we respond to things going forward if we're paying attention. So when we're uncomfortable, that means there's development that awaits us. And it's rather interesting that this collective uncomfortableness with the idea of female ejaculation, I mean, Ben Shapiro is so concerned that a woman is producing enough liquid that she would require mops and buckets to clean it up, going so far as to calling on his wife, who's a doctor, and her differential diagnosis. Referring to this as possibly an alarm for something significantly wrong with the woman's vaginal canal. Maybe she has an STD. The thing that I found really absurd about that initial reaction, it just kind of demonstrated how little some people know about human sexuality and functionality. And what comes to mind is a book that I read by Dr. Emily Nagoski. And I don't know if you're familiar with who she is. She did a TED Talk on arousal nonconcordance, And I thought it was a riveting lecture. And it spoke to topics that we don't really participate in every day. But it's an important topic. And so I ran to her book, Come As You Are. And I remember her talking about this this particular topic of female wetness and stickiness and, and ejaculation, and there was a reference to how she fields many questions about squirting, whether she can help someone uh, figure out how to squirt or she can help someone figure out how to stop squirting. And so in her book, she writes this, and I just, I want to read it to you. Our culture sends mixed messages to women about their genital fluids or lack thereof. On the one hand, ejaculation is viewed as a quintessentially masculine event, and women's genitals are, you know, shameful. So for a woman's body to do something so emphatic and wet is unacceptable. The biological message is simple. Female ejaculation is a byproduct, like male nipples and the hymen. No matter how big a deal culture makes of it, women vary. But this brings to me an important point about genitals. They get wet sometimes, and they have fragrance, a scent, A rich and earthy bouquet, redolent of grass and amber, with a hint of woody musk. Genitals are aromatic, sometimes, and sticky, sometimes, too. Your genitals' secretions are probably different at different phases in your menstrual cycle, and they change as you age, and they change with your diet. Women vary. If you don't find the smell or sensation of genital wetness to be completely beautiful and trancing, that's unsurprising, given how we teach people to feel about their genitals. But how you feel about your genitals and their secretion is learned. And loving your body just as it is will give you more intense arousal and desire and bigger, better orgasms. And that's from Come As You Are, pages 31 to 32. So we've learned to reject the ideas about celebrating women's wetness along the same lines that we learned to reject pretty much everything about the feminine form. It's secondary, it's not as important, and sometimes it's just irrelevant altogether. When someone like Cardi B comes along and makes an irrelevant topic relevant, like Lady Lubrication, society responds with relevant fears and criticisms because their comfort's been distorted, if even temporarily. I don't recall too much noise in any of the guided sermons on Song of Songs that infiltrate the churches week after week. And like I just read to you, Song of Songs has some pretty intense references to lubrication and to aromatic scents. It seems to me... Solomon was a bit entranced by the scent and the wetness of his lover. It also seems to me Cardi B knows her man might be entranced by the wetness and scents of her. And she put that shit down on poetry. And here we are, praising Song of Songs, saying, isn't that beautiful, when our pastor reads it to us. But when Cardi B tells it to us, we act like, my ears are bleeding and are in need of holy water. Or... If you're like Russell Brand, you step up and start insisting that women need to reject this whole narrative altogether because ultimately it was a man's narrative first. So right now I'm going to pause on my Bible verses and we're going to focus on what Russell Brand has to say. Listen to this.
2: My key point I would like to make is do we achieve equality by aspiring to the values established by the forces or uh, uh, authors of the hierarchy and system itself. I.e. do women achieve equality by aspiring to and replicating the values that have been established by males? Let's take this one simple example, because that's what this video is about. If male hip-hop tropes are about the potency of male sexuality, which we sort of think, well, these are reductive, it's not a celebration of uh, traditional, conventional male values such as duty, service, loyalty, bravery, courage, all traits, of course, that could exist across genders and sexes, but I'm talking about traditional values. And uh, and then the, the female video is a sort of a celebration of sexual potency, or let's just take the description that the, the, the Guardian offered. Sexuality, sensuality isn't shy, coy, loud articulation of female desire. Essentially, it's an emulation of a template that already exists and was established by males. Is it equality if the template has already been established by the former dominator? The answer is no.
0: So I'm going to tell you what I heard. I heard Russell Brand say that just because this has been delivered as a precedent by the male hip hop sector doesn't mean to make it equal that females need to do the same thing. Because what females need to realize is that men created this narrative. Men created this form of presentation. This was men's original idea, depraved and selfish and narcissistic and patriarchal. And so women imitating that are simply just perpetuating patriarchy. That's what I heard. And if you heard it differently, I'm interested in your feedback. And I'd like you to help me hear it the way you hear it. But that's what I hear. And that's what I often hear. I hear that coming out of progressive circles. And I hear that coming out of conservative circles. That if a woman does something that, that mirrors what a man has already done, it's because she's imitating it. So what? Women can't have an original thought or what? Look, I like Russell Brand. I listen to his podcast quite often. But once in a while, I would like to hear somebody ask a different question and not accuse a woman of just copying a man and putting her woman and vulva label right over it because that's not what's going on. So let's go back in history, way, 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 way back when, when all of the symbolism, all of the archaeology reveals All of the ancient religious and deity worship demonstrates. The yoni, the vulva, the vagina, the wet-ass pussy, that was what was worshipped. That was the womb of life, okay? And so now, a woman realizing that and maybe putting a little different spin in the language translation presentation, suddenly... That's just not her idea anymore, that's patriarchal, that's the man's programming, and that needs to be rejected. No, what we need to do is we need to go back to yoni worship. Do you have any idea what yoni worship would actually do for women? I mean, do you know how beneficial this would be for men? Women don't even give their vulvas, their yonis, their vaginas, any kind of an identity. They don't see it as anything other than a part of their body. My yoni is my leg, is my ankle, is my elbow, is my nose. We don't look at what it is. It is an entrance to life within. We can also excrete death. We can push out new life. I mean, we are phenomenal creatures. And that opening into the universe needs more recognition, praise. Hallelujah, my yoni. My yoni is wet, and that is good. God saw what he had created, and it was very good. Do you know what's very good? The fact that only women, only women have a pleasure button. Do you know that? But we don't even talk about that. Yoni worship, that is where we go back to embodiment of eroticism. That is where we develop our erotic intelligence. Understanding the womb of all of creation. Rest in between our freaking legs, ladies and gentlemen. And so the scent thing, I think uh, Shapiro got banged up pretty good over uh, a particular set of lyrics that he read out loud. Um, I Man, I gotta tell you, I loved watching so many of the video reactions to other people watching this video for the first time and hearing the lyrics because they're brilliant, they're brilliant. And there are so many of the, 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 the verses where you, where you hear it and you kind of giggle. Like, I mean, um, if you've got a Volvo, you would anyway. You would giggle at that shit. And so I just want to read something to you. And I want to draw your attention back to Song of Songs with these lyrics that I'm going to read you. Okay? Extra large and extra hard. Put this pussy right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. So remember that verse from earlier where Solomon is talking about her scents? These are primal sensations that we react to. They activate something within us. And a lot of times we don't even pay attention to it, right? But here's the thing. I have livestock. And so the funniest thing in the world is watching my bull get excited when the wind picks up. And he can smell that kaya, my cow, is ready. And what that means is she is ready for him to park his Big Mac truck in her little garage, okay? And the 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 funniest and most beautiful, delightful sight is our bull tank and grinning ear to ear and eye to eye and making these most annoying atrocious squealing sounds, knowing what I smell my smell was cooking. And I really appreciate how this has become a forefront like conversation that we're gonna judge and dismiss. But all the while, like nature demonstrates it to us repeatedly and we don't even like notice the humor and humility of it all. Look, I get it. Cardi B's lyrics aren't for kids, but she knows that. It's not like she's making kids bop music cardi is making music for us to make kids and parents are the ones that need to be called upon to take accountability for setting the boundaries and parameters for what they are cognitively developed to handle and accept and if your kid does hear a lyric if your kid does hear something they're not supposed to what do you all do when your kid is not with you like the poor unfortunate cruelty of the world is that we're exposed to things that we didn't ask to be exposed to A lot of times, things just kinda happen. But the other beautiful thing about humanity is how resilient we are. And so if your kid does hear something like pussy, or doesn't understand why everybody's talking about a wet pussy, sit her down and talk to her. Don't lie to her, don't keep her in the dark. Know that if she's under the age of 12, she's more than likely to change the subject immediately after you talk about it because she doesn't really care. And the same can be said for your boys. When Epstein started surfacing, when the sex scandals, when the sex trafficking, when everything started really coming into my purview, you're damn right I sat down with my kids and I started having deeper discussions with them. I can't advise other people to embody their erotic selves if I can't do it in the home. And if I can't help my children understand that, what good am I actually offering to humanity? What what am I really serving? Sex scandals reveal the depravity of the world, the morbidity, the perversion, sociopathic, psychopathic, narcissistic, unhealed, abusive traits that often plague people and plague people we know or plague us personally. And I'm not trying to make light of the very serious circumstances and consequences that arise from when sex is exploited, when sex is perverted. But Instead of jumping on that same frequency, instead of jumping on that negative route, instead of thinking that we also have to add our two cents about how horrible and evil this is, let's find a silver lining in what's revealed to us and ask ourselves why people are attracted to this or that without judging them, but just trying to understand them. Again, It's hard for all of us to pull back from that desire to judge. But I think that's what part of the gospel news is. We don't need to be caught up in judgment. When we judge others, we judge ourselves. And I think a lot of times when we're judging others, I think that's just a projection. I think it's because we realize that there's something we haven't worked out inside. But that's more uncomfortable than calling someone an asshole or a skank or perverted or a hypocrite. So... Sometimes we just use words to make ourselves feel better, but I don't really think that's the case. If you want to feel better, have sex, have really good sex, and if you're struggling with how to have really good sex, get in touch with me and let me help you embody your erotic self.